Thank you for allowing me to share some significant moments of my spiritual journey. And a special thanks to David Young, Michael, and David Satterin for their trust in allowing me to tell my story. I'll start at the end. I am at peace with God. Grateful for this safe place to openly worship with my husband and deeply appreciative of the love of my family, my husband, and many dear friends. My career as a professor of voice at Loyola Marymount University was a true gift. I currently spend much of my time working on the boards of two nonprofit organizations. One is a scholarship fund we developed for the training of black, indigenous, and people of color to train in the three-year full-time certification course in the Alexander Technique. The technique is the foundation of my teaching. I am also active on the board of Long Beach Organic, an organization that operates eight community gardens, most of which are in food desert areas of Long Beach. In addition to gardening opportunities, we offer educational programs and donations of produce from our gardens. Last year, we donated over 2,000 pounds of produce to the Cal State University Food Bank and are well on our way to tripling that amount this year. I came across a meme recently that helped me reflect on my understanding of God. It is a pie chart circle. A razor-thin portion of the pie is labeled Things I Know. A slightly larger but still thin portion is labeled Things I Know I Don't Know. 99.9% of the chart is labeled Things I don't know, I don't know. Life seems to be the journey into the 99.9% of things I don't know, I don't know. God and my life's journey are intimately intertwined. My history with God, however, and certainly with the broader church, has not been so easy, often turbulent and vitriolic. On the journey with me are two eternal companions the twin demons of fear and arrogance. When my demons are in check, however, the gift of life is filled with wonder, mystery, awe, and deep gratitude. My passion is the voice. I've made a rough estimate of working professionally with at minimum 500 individual singers over the past 30 years, most during the four years of their university education. Adding my work with singers in opera, musical theater, workshops, and choirs, the numbers are exponentially beyond that. I still get giddy satisfaction when students find new potential in their voice, and I still get goosebumps when hearing extraordinary beauty and authenticity in vocal performance. When the word, word gifts is read in today's scripture, at a deep level, I hear the word voices, many voices, one spirit. I grew up in a middle-class suburban home in Whittier. A childhood memory surfaced in preparing this talk of hiding under the sheets of my bed with my transistor radio and earphones. I had randomly found a radio station that played what I later learned was opera. I knew nothing about opera, the singers, or even the story, but I do remember being transfixed by the superhuman power 
and soaring melodies of the singers. The other side of this memory, however, was the terror of being caught. I was an extremely effeminate child, growing up in a 1960s machismo household and community. I was sure that listening to whatever opera was would lead to even more fodder for public humiliation and bullying. I found that I am not alone. There are so many internal and external powers working to silence us. Finding one's voice extends far beyond opera, musical theater, or rock and roll. Claiming our voice grounds our identity, relevance, and inclusion in community. The exploration of my own voice is ongoing and, with most of us, taken many unexpected turns. Being a feminist as a child and later coming out as gay held their own challenges. It was the AIDS epidemic emerging during my 20s and my own diagnosis with HIV and AIDS that became the major crossroad in my life. As many of you know too well, the staggering loss of those around us was impossible to process. Beautiful, aspirational, vibrant friends and colleagues would suffer unconscionable health crises and death within months. In the midst of my doctoral studies, I was told I was likely to die within the year, was paraded around in front of the USC medical interns as each opportunistic infection arose, and advised not to start a serious relationship. It would be another decade before protease inhibitors were to make HIV a more manageable disease. In the midst of my, diag- my desperate suicidal chaos, I met David, first at a friend's house, then into relationship with him, ironically, at a Presbyterian worship conference. In spite of our differing HIV statuses, with courage, faith, and character, he chose to connect rather than run. We have now come upon 33 years in our relationship and six years of legal marriage. Finding your voice often means listening to and embracing the plans of a greater authority and purpose. Rather than succumbing to the superficial authority of humankind, the arrogance of trying to be in control and living in fear. Two years after my diagnosis with HIV, I was diagnosed with a degenerative muscle condition that at best guess involves both an autoimmune element and a congenital muscular dystrophy. I currently cannot stand and use a powered wheelchair. My right arm is fully functional, although weak. I can still play piano with my left arm, but cannot lift it on my own beyond waist level. My HIV diagnosis and muscular degeneration, as superficially devastating as they seem to me, introduced me to extraordinary new communities. Out of deep tragedy, HIV survivors and their loved ones developed new forms of political activism and advocacy for our health, redefined the concept of family units, and developed the skills to survive and transcend extreme grief. The disabled community is vibrant with creative solutions to a multitude of problems, movement, and otherwise. You will find no stronger examples of sheer will and fortitude. Without dwelling on the subject, My first experience with organized Christian religions was the predominance of their judgment and hatred of me as a gay person. 
I confess this, I confess this spawned deep cynicism. Three life transforming, unexpected experiences brought me back to communal worship. A call came from one of my mentors in choral conducting. There was a small Presbyterian church in West Hollywood, now joyfully transitioned to a UCC congregation, that needed an organist choir director. Needing income as a doctoral student at USC, this seemed an easy choice. I discovered that the church was predominantly gay, healing gay Christians suffering from abandonment by their home churches and often their families and ministering to those diagnosed and dying from AIDS. The love and support of that community was nothing like I had ever seen or experienced. It also housed the Mary Magdalene Project, now called Journey Out, that focused on helping those trapped in sex trafficking and prostitution find new lives. I moved to a large United Methodist Church for professional advancement. During that time, a new minister was called, Reverend Dr. Faith Conklin. We were highly suspicious of one another. I was a respected and well-liked choral conductor in the church, but known as an aggressive liberal gay activist. Faith was the first woman ordained in our conference. She had a conservative reputation, and the LGBTQ community gossip was she did not support gay persons within the church. Surprisingly, we established a great working relationship in collaborative worship and working together to grow a significant middle school educational program. LGBTQ issues, however, were essentially old school. Don't ask, don't tell. She called me into her office one day and asked me to sit down. I was moderately apprehensive. She explained that she had attended an ecumenical church luncheon in Orange County. The speaker and discussion focused on the gay community within the church. She said the vile hatred she witnessed in that open discussion was revelatory for her. This naked expression of loathing shattered opened her eyes to the cognitive dissonance of a theology that preached love but chose to deny love to a select portion of humanity. It is an inconvenient truth for far too many that no religion, no economic class, no race, no nationality, no gender, no education, no range of physical ability, and no degree of intelligence can lay exclusive claim over the capacity to love. From that point on, Faith has has been a strong advocate for the LGBTQ communities. For over 10 years, she became my teacher, spiritual mentor, and friend. Faith was one of the ministers presiding at Dave's and my wedding. This was the first gay wedding over which she presided, and in doing so officially put her ordination within the United Methodist Church in peril. I don't believe that in my lifetime I will will be able to conquer the moment of anxiety that arises when someone I meet identifies as a Christian or when I walk into an unknown Christian church. This fear is not irrational, being supported by a recent Pew Research study saying well over 50% of self-ascribed Christians see the LGBTQ plus communities as living in sin. The number of homeless and suicidal youth abandoned by self-ascribed Christian households 
is beyond heartbreaking, tragic, and to be quite honest, infuriates me. I pray that the next generation of young gay people will instead know that the church is an inspired safe place to find and nurture their unique voices. The UCC denomination has ordained openly gay clergy since 1972. Even knowing this, it took me a while to be comfortable here at the neighborhood church. When I first attended, it was not clearly open and affirming congregation. And gay issues were again a bit don't ask, don't tell. I cannot express enough gratitude for David and Michelle's inspiration for us to marry in this sanctuary, David's offer to preside at our wedding, and the extraordinary support of the neighborhood church congregation. It was a dream held so deeply for me that it didn't really allow itself to surface until the event itself was real. I've learned so much from my students, the communities into which I was reluctantly drawn, and my dissonant but ultimately serendipitous relationship with the church. Respecting and truly listening to unfamiliar voices, providing a nurturing safe space for growth, and opening ourselves to what can seem like radical change takes us further into the universe of the what we don't know we don't know. For me, this is the essence of a more comprehensive experience of God. The neighborhood church is my home. I look forward to continuing our fantastical journey together toward deep spiritual growth and understanding. I close with this blessing from Albert Camus' The Stranger which has sustained me for many years now. My dear, in the midst of hate, I found there was within me an invincible love. In the midst of tears, I found there was within me an invincible smile. In the midst of chaos, I found there was within me an invincible calm. I realized through it all that in the midst of winter, I found there was with me within me an invincible summer, and that makes me happy. For it says that no matter how hard the world pushes against me, within me, there's something stronger, something better, pushing right back. Thank you, thank you God, for the gift of the resurrected, invincible within us, and God bless.